Hey, this is Daryl. We have a great episode of Allocation Disorder for you today with Sam Steshko and Paul Tenorio. Sam and Paul are going to be talking about the Vancouver Whitecaps. What is going on at the Vancouver Whitecaps and what's happening more generally in Major League Soccer front offices. They also look ahead to the MLS's back Orlando tournament and wonder, will teams play their kids in the MLS's back tournament? Keep listening to find out the answer. I've got to be honest, my mind this weekend is on the Premier League. Premier League is back. And if you want to watch the Premier League, you could do a lot worse than using today's sponsor, Fubo TV. The family plan on Fubo TV has the channels you need to watch the Premier League action. It also comes with 500 hours of cloud DVR. My DVR is scheduled right now to record Norwich versus Southampton and Spurs versus Manchester United. If you want to give Fubo a try, go to fubo.tv slash TSS and you can get a seven-day free trial. That's a seven-day free trial at fubo.tv slash TSS. The link will be in the show notes. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stayskull, joined after a brief one-week hiatus by my co-host, Paul Tenorio. Um, Paul, welcome back to you. How are things going tonight? Good. I just want to make sure everyone knows that I'm not getting Wally pipped by Matt Pence. I'm sorry. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm back, and I'm not giving up my spot here on the show, no matter how much Sam wants to get rid of me. <laughs> Who said I wanted to get rid of you? I listened to the show last week when I was on vacation, Sam. I, I, I watched our Slack channels. I know what you were up to. But it's not going to happen. I'm here to stay. And uh, back to uh, back to the fun of allocation disorder. Listen, sometimes you just got to light a fire under under your colleagues, you know, and, you know, maybe I was just maybe it's just a motivational tactic. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, we have a full show on of allocation disorder for you guys as we record here on Thursday night. And as the fireworks explode behind my apartment in New York City, um, we've beaten the Orlando thing a little bit to death over the last month or so. We've analyzed it from just about every angle. Paul, I know you obviously missed the show show last week, but talked about the groups and kind of handicapped things. We'll talk a little bit about Orlando, but it'll be in the context of young players in MLS and kind of their role within the league. Um, We're also going to talk a little bit about Vancouver and their big decision earlier this week to fire their CEO, um, Mark Panis, uh, less than six months after they hired him, um, and after he had done what a lot of fans considered anyway, to be a pretty decent job uh, repairing some of the wounds uh, for a club that had really struggled um, with a lot of off-field, some scandals, um, a lot of apathy, and just doesn't seem to be headed in the right direction at all. So that was, we'll start there, and, and we'll work our way into a bigger discussion about MLS front offices. Um, but, you know, I laid out some of the facts already in Vancouver, Panis is out. Axel Schuster, who was hired to run their sporting department this offseason, is now going to be CEO and uh, chief soccer officer. Um, So that's a big job for somebody who's just coming over from Germany and doesn't really know the league yet. Um, And, you know, Whitecaps owner Jeff Mallett, he went in and and he had a media availability over Zoom uh, to kind of explain the decision, and he didn't really explain it. Um, he sort of mentioned costs, but then denied costs, said they just wanted one voice. 
Um, but the whole thing was a little bit weird and pretty disorganized. And you mentioned Matt Pence. Uh, he wrote a nice column on this on The Athletic, um, just kind of breaking the whole thing down and the obfuscation or seeming obfuscation from the caps. And, you know, to me, that's a situation up in Vancouver that seems like it really should be a good one for the league. And they just can't get out of their own way. Yeah, you know, it's it seems to be a trend, I think, in Major League Soccer that there are these teams who make things more difficult than they have to be. And, you know, I, I was talking with somebody recently about leadership in sports and kind of my experience over the last five years covering the league um, full-time, covering other leagues and other sports teams. And we were talking about ego and leadership and, um, you know, red flags, essentially, that you see in, in, in organizations that struggle. And I think, you know, one big one is, you know, there there's a failure sometimes to listen and um, to recognize the moments where um, getting input is more important than, you know, doing what you feel is right based on simply internal conversations or, um, you know, within your little uh, yes man bubble that gets created. And I think that, you know, from afar, Vancouver seems to be in this rut here where, you know, you're, you're hearing time and time again, frustrations coming up from fans who want the club to succeed, who want to see the good things happen. And yet the club finds a way to get, in the way of that and to do what they want to do regardless of the feedback they're getting. And in addition to Matt's piece that ran, I read a couple other stories um, from papers up in Vancouver about fans who, who, you know, they looked at this as the final straw. They, they felt like they connected um, with the new leadership and the style and the fact that they were being heard, that Vancouver was finally being transparent and, now that's all gone and, 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 you know, it became, and not only did they make a move that the fans weren't happy with, but the lack of transparency in that call for, from, with Mallet, I think was insult to injury. And, um, and, and I think you're seeing a lot of, a lot of pushback from fans who are saying, this is it. I'm done. I'm out. And, you know, frankly, I think that, it's deserved, right? It's earned by Vancouver's yeah. ownership at this point. I mean, and, I mean and they've, I don't been, know how they've stuck it. with that team for a long time, a lot longer than, you know, if I was a fan, I probably would have stuck around. And they have some, you know, decent numbers in the crowd. And, and that's why I said it feels like that city is really ripe for it if they could just get out of their own way. But they can't do it. Um, I just don't get it, Paul. Like, I just don't, like, I'm sure there's more to this story than we know. I would hope there's more to the story than we know, to be quite honest. Um, but on the surface, it just doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. Well, Sam, it'd be remiss of us if we looked at this in isolation as, as one incident or one decision. Because even if you go back beyond the change in leadership that occurred just a few months ago, by the way, the shakeup mm-hmm. in the front office, the hiring, which included Axel Schuster, who is now in a dual role as the CEO and general manager. And when you look prior to the Whitecaps, you know, even modicum of success. Um, Carl Robinson was the coach and the sporting side of Vancouver has always been disorganized. It's always lacked 
true leadership, true vision, um, you know, a way to kind of plan for the, the long term as well as the short term. And when you talk to people about the way that club was run, there is there was not a surprise that Vancouver didn't ever seem to capitalize fully on the talent they had. And some of that talent they tripped and fell into, right? Some of that talent, Alfonso Davies is probably the greatest homegrown player in the history, not probably, as of right now, is the greatest homegrown <laughs> I player. I mean, he's one of the best left backs in the world. In the history like... of, of this of this <laughs> league. I mean, he's he's valued. I saw the graphic the other day, valuing at north of $130 million, which is just insane. I mean, that seems a little out of control. And, and I think, you know, we have to, I mean, just but just the fact that they have not been able to capitalize on a great fan base, on an amazing city, um, an area where they should be able to recruit top players, and yep. even if you look at what they've done in the wake of selling Alfonso Davies for $20 million, and, and by the way, we don't know how much more money they've made since Alfonso Davies has not only secured a starting spot, but plays every single game, 90 minutes yeah, a game. Yeah, the, 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 the ceiling, I think, was $22 million on that transfer fee, and it seems like he's going to hit that. Yeah, so, so, and what have they done with that money? They signed one player, right, really? Lucas, Lucas Cavallini. And, and signed a, a few guys last year, um, most of whom were gigantic busts um, and didn't work out at all. But they don't spend money. They haven't really spent the Davies money on the first team. And they seem to be going nowhere. They have one of the worst rosters in the entire league. Um, you know, I think Mark Dos Santos deserves some time and he's had success everywhere he's been in the lower divisions. But what he did last year was not impressive, like straight up. It was not impressive. Um, and I was expecting a lot more from him than what he showed. They brought in Schuster above him because he was kind of acting as coach and GM and they bring in Schuster above him. And now Schuster has to focus on the business and the sporting side of a league that he, of a club in a league that he doesn't really know yet. Right. In a country that he doesn't really know. And, you know, you move halfway across the world, you get all of that thrown at you. I mean, that's a lot to ask. Like, there were questions about whether or not he was cut for the GM job among people that I was talking to around the league. And maybe that's unfair, right? Maybe he would have been a, a great GM. Maybe he still will be, right? But it's just it's just a lot to throw at the guy who seemed like kind of almost like sheepish a little bit uh, about taking this role of a guy that he seemed to get along with and, and said was like a good friend of his. So, yeah, I think uh, Sam, I think it's also, you know, worth pointing out. I, and I, I know we're about to get into kind of the, the, the bigger league wide trend here and, you know, Vancouver kind of putting themselves in a box where they're, they're not qualified to be in it. I think, you know, there's one or two guys who I think, are in this these dual roles who have a track record of success, and then otherwise it's 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 clubs that you you shouldn't be trying to model your, yourself after. But I, I also want to go back to the initial hire. You know, you talked about bringing Axel Schuster in, and the questions that we both heard about uh, his qualifications for the job, fair or not. Um, and I think it's interesting. It, it does fall into this other trend that's happening in MLS, and that's to look abroad for the head of soccer. And I think if you were going to get to a point where, first of all, if you're hiring a soccer job in the league, you should be talking to qualified candidates within the league. I'm a really, really strong believer in that. But yeah. especially if you feel like you might get to a point where you're going to, quote unquote, streamline these roles and have somebody in a dual role, knowledge of the league becomes even more paramount, right? And 
you know, I'm just going to throw a, a name out there as somebody who I think, you know, could have potentially been available for Vancouver, has a track record of success in the league, understands the region where this team plays. And, and that's Chris Henderson, who, who's done a fantastic job in Seattle, um, works underneath Garth Lagerway, who, who is the best general manager in the league. And, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, you, the, for me, the fact that there weren't, you know, there wasn't more of a look at, at somebody like that who was just down the road, who had a track record of success. I just question all of the decision making that's been happening in this in this franchise. And now this exacerbates the decision to go outside of the league. Right. You've you've yeah. now compounded your own decision by putting even more on the plate of somebody who has had not very much time at all to adjust to the league, the business structure of North American sports. Um, the, 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 being able to sell soccer in North America, just leaving his home country of Germany and moving across the world in the midst, in the middle of a pandemic that has completely altered the business landscape across all sports globally. Um, it's, it's, you're putting a lot on one person's plate. And, you know, I think about Nelson Rodriguez, who I think probably Mm -hmm. was the most qualified person to, to run the business side of a club still does. And was trying to do soccer as well, and and how much that stretched him, even with his extensive experience in the business of major league. Yeah, soccer. he had been in MLS for decade, like what, fifteen years? Yeah, something like that. Like no one knows the league quite like he does. He understands all of it. Whether or not you think he's good, right? You know, like I think it's very clear that he wasn't good in both roles. He had some success as a GM in 2017, but that was very short lived. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, like, I think Nelson, Nelson, I don't know if it was to me or to a group of media, but he said straight up, like, you know, doing both roles isn't sustainable. It's just too much work. Like you're stretched too thin. And when someone who is doing that says that publicly to a journalist, like you shouldn't be trying to seek out that situation. You know, especially in a club like Vancouver that doesn't have an extensive support system on the technical side of things, right? Greg Anderson is still there, and he's he's been in that technical department for years, and he knows what he's doing. He knows the league. Um, he knows all the rules. He can navigate all of that stuff, um, but they just don't have a lot of bodies compared to a lot of other teams in the league, and so it's just going to be difficult. Hey, this is Daryl jumping in to let you know that today's show is sponsored by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12. If you're wondering what CBD is, CBD is the non-psychoactive part of the marijuana plant. And the idea is that consuming CBD can help you relax, help you chill out, help you focus. And if you can consume CBD in a tasty little gummy bear, then why not, right? If tiny chewy bears are not for you, Sunday Scaries also produces CBD in oil form. We can just drop it on your tongue. And even if you've got something that really needs to get done in the form of an energy shot, the YOLO shot, which is an energy drink combined with CBD. If you'd like to give Sunday Scaries a try, you can get 25% off your first order with the code SOCCER at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com if you enter the code SOCCER where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. Find out what products might be best for you. Go to sundayscaries.com and use code SOCCER. All right, let's get back to Sam and Paul. The other part of it here, and this is something that I find interesting and 
you know, the the foreign GM or the GM coming from abroad into MLS is kind of a newer phenomenon. So, you know, kind of, of course, like there aren't going to be many huge success stories. But I want to say, if you go back to 2010, I think all of the MLS Cup champions have had a GM or a sporting director um, who is either American or in the case of Portland, who won in 2015, um, with Gavin Wilkinson, who's from New Zealand, you know, he played in the U S retired, became a coach, moved into the front office. So, you know, very much of the U S soccer system in terms of his professional career. Um, I don't think any were guys that came from abroad. Um, so, you know, it's kind of wild. You see a lot of these teams looking, looking that way and looking to Europe, um, for their sporting directors. And there just hasn't been a ton of success yet. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years because we're seeing more and more teams go that route. And I think you and I both expect that this trend is coming from a place of, of owners who want to capitalize on selling homegrown players, right? They want to capitalize on the international market, not just homegrown players, um, but they recognize that MLS has long ignored a revenue stream that is one of the most important in professional soccer in the rest of the world. And at a time when this league needs new revenue streams, that's going to become more and more important. For sure. So and we'll seen, get back to that we, later. We've seen these <laughs> hires happening. And, and my question is, um, are we going to see the payoff, right? Are we going to see at all those GMs actually sell players? Because yeah. there's yeah. a lot that goes into that, right? You have to be able to find the talent, buy the talent, develop the talent. And then market and sell that talent. And to this point, and, and again, we're early. Maybe maybe you could say Darren Eels played a role in that in Atlanta. But, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say that you could you yeah. could put Darren Eels in there. Uh, uh, you know, but we're pulling out one example. You know, Darren Eels is British, for those who don't know. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, you got to remember Darren Eels came in as... Um, you know, a president of the club, you know, his general manager is Carlos Bocanegra, the technical director who was very involved in signing, finding and signing at Miguel Miron with Paul McDonough, who's now with Miami. So two Americans in the technical side who were in charge of finding the players, signing the players, doing the deals. And then, you know, I think Darren Neal's experience really helped to sell that, sell Miguel Miron to a Premier League team. Um, Certainly, I think you have to, to take that into account. But I think you know we're gonna we're gonna see what happens with Ernst Tanner in Philadelphia, um, you know, with Gerard Nightcamp in Cincinnati, um, the, Heights know, in Chicago, Heights in Chicago. You know, there are, there are multiple examples that have happened. Charlotte, yeah. Well, Charlotte is, is another really interesting one to watch, um, and and we're seeing I think a lot of different companies coming in, um, in in Major League Soccer and and with with designs on, on pointing these, these clubs to these international candidates, Andre Zanota and Dallas is another one. Um, so even I, Kevin Thelwell with the Red Bulls, you know, although you could argue Red Bull is kind of a European conglomerate, and, you know, European soccer feel anyway, but that's their new CSO coming over from Wolves. Right. So we'll, we'll see now. I think it's worth monitoring over the next couple of years, what happens, but you know, certainly, um, I think there's a question mark there because of the track record of success and examples of guys like Garth Lockerway who have been so successful within the league and then 
have these kind of trees of guys that that are coming out out of these GMs. We're not seeing that to the same extent that we see it in leagues like the NFL and NBA and MLB. When you have a really successful general manager, their number twos and their number threes end up spreading out within the league. And that just doesn't really happen here. I mean, Garth is probably the one example where he's had a couple guys, but, you know, has he? I mean, Elliot Fall in, in Salt Lake is, is certainly someone that, that fits that, but I think that's kind of the only one, unless I'm forgetting something. Um, but that's an interesting point, Paul, the fact that the trees don't really exist, for, for at least on the, on that level. Yeah, not, in the, in, not in the same way they do in coaching with Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley. That's, right. that's what's most interesting, is that it's, it's so prominent in American soccer and the coaching side, and not so much on the technical side. And in fact, I think the the best recruiting ground in Major League Soccer before this kind of movement to go foreign has really been either the league or the players' union. You know, you you look at the GMs and the where the experience come from. There's a lot of GMs that that pull from what those two organizations. Yeah, Tim uh, Bezbachenko, Ollie Curtis, both of the league. John Thorington was with the union um, in a professional capacity after he retired as a player. Um, yeah, that's uh. That's an interesting thing. And then another thing that I know we should point out here is that there are, are there's some sort of a trend, maybe. A trend is probably strong. But there are more people who are moving from the soccer side to become chief business officers at clubs. And I think that's kind of interesting because one thing I hear a lot of um, and one thing I heard a lot of from players over the last couple of months as they were kind of in this drag out fight with the league about Orlando is that the business side folks don't understand players and the players were of the opinion, at least a few that I spoke to that people who are soccer people need to be in charge because they get it in ways that people who don't have that background, who are mostly the people that run the league, right? To be frank, um, don't understand. And they feel like that's a, that's a big thing that's missing. Um, I think there's some merit in that. Um, but we are seeing that start to, I don't know if trend, again, I don't, trend is probably a strong word, but we're starting to see it a little bit, right? Paul McDonough comes from the sporting side and, you know, he's he's got more responsibilities in Miami. Same with Tim Bezpachenko in Columbus. Um, Porig Smith in Colorado, you know, I'm not sure that that's one that you would necessarily point to as like an ideal situation. They are super, super short staffed at the Rapids and you kind of get the sense that he's in charge of both because maybe they don't want to hire someone else. Um, you know, Schuster, we mentioned, um, Eels kind of has some responsibilities or dips his toe in on the soccer side from time to time. And then, you know, Chris Klein, a longtime MLS player went straight into the LA galaxy front office. And after a year or two, he was club president. So lots of things going on there. That, that trend to me is going to be interesting to see if that continues where more people are making the move from the sporting side to the business side to run these clubs. Yeah. And I'm really interested to see, you know, you kind of alluded to this when you talk about those conversations with players, but do these trends start to move up the ladder and into the league? Because really there's been a lack of transition overall at major league soccer in the headquarters, right? Most of the leadership has been there for 20 um, years, 20 years. You're talking about Don Garber, who's who's been in that position for a significant amount of time. Mark Abbott, I think, is employee number two in MLS history, is now yeah, the deputy he's, commissioner. He's closer to, closer to thirty than twenty. Um, Todd Durbin has been there for a significant amount of time. You know, these are the decision makers in the office, and, and there's been a little bit of changeover. Gary Stevenson ca- came in um, to a significant role. 
we've seen some new voices added in, but not very many that have come out of the soccer world. You know, usually, typically, those those players, former players, cycle through the player department. Bezvachenko was there. Ali Curtis was there. Aleko Eskandarian is an example of a former player who's in that office now. And yeah, I wonder... Jeff Angus sort of touches that sure, side. Jeff yeah. Angus, as, as the head of the competition, certainly is probably the highest-ranking former player involved in the league now. And I've always wondered whether we'll see somebody transition out of a soccer front office in a, in a club and move into a league role. And, and you, the, the place you think of is, is probably former coaches, right. Who have been really successful administrators you know, I think of somebody like Bruce arena um, who probably could have been on that track if not for the world cup failures. And even with that, you think, think so like league leadership. Yeah. I mean, Bruce? I mean, certainly he's been combative with the league, but I think he's also <laughs> been somebody who's been very involved in the technical committees. Um, I don't think anyone at the league would be rushing to hire Bruce. Just knowing Bruce and how how he how he talks to people and how he deals with people. But those are the personalities that we're talking about, right? Where I think it would be, you know, guys like that who have been successful across multiple clubs in administrative roles. And, you know, Garth Lagerway is another example of somebody who I think would be a great candidate to move out of the club world and into the league world. Ali Curtis is somebody who has experience in the league. Um, who's now been successful at multiple clubs, who I think could transition into a, a league role, a prominent league role. Um, you know, I, I do think those candidates are out there, that they do exist in the Peter soccer Vermees, world. Maybe. Peter yeah. Vermees, maybe. Peter is a, I don't know how, I thank you for bringing his name up, because he's probably, you know, the best example and somebody who I think would have been a, a great candidate for the U.S. soccer GM role that Ernie Stewart ended up getting. And and, you know, obviously Ernie Stewart continues to go up that. And speaking of the kind of movement over to soccer people in leadership roles, U.S. soccer is a really great example. This has been something fans have clamored for. Now you have Cindy yeah. Parlo Cohn as the president of U.S. soccer and Ernie Stewart as the technical director, the general manager of U.S. soccer on the sporting side. So Sporting director, right? Eh? You know, sporting there, director now? Yeah, sporting His director. His title's changed like three states, times like in a year. the third time yeah. he's got a job switch. But yeah, I think... I certainly think I agree that it's not a trend yet, but I, I do wonder whether we'll see movement continue in that direction and whether we'll see some. I think it would be valuable to the league to get some of those voices involved and into roles where they can ascend uh, in, in the league leadership track. And, and that doesn't really exist right now. I think that would be interesting. Um, personally, I would like to see those people stay with clubs because I think they can make maybe it's less of a global impact, but maybe more, it's a more concentrated impact for sure. Um, but I, th- I, I mean, maybe this is just my personal opinion, but I think those jobs are more important in a lot of different ways, unless you're actually the commissioner, um, which, you know, those people really, there's only one of those. And I don't think Don's going anywhere for a while. So, um, anyway, it's definitely going to be an interesting thing to watch it's going to be interesting to see how it how it develops you know like any other league in north america mls is very much a copycat league so the people that have success or the clubs that have success other teams are going to try and emulate that and uh you know these next few years will be instructive in in that way as always um paul i think we can we can maybe break for a second and then come back with our discussion of young players and how they fit into this league and how they fit into this upcoming orlando tournament Look at that. Thank you, Sam and Paul, for leaving a nice little gap for me to put an ad in. You truly are the MLS podcast co-hosts of choice. 
Today's show is sponsored by Manscaped. If you are starting to venture out carefully into the world, or maybe you're just thinking about venturing out once quarantine is over, then you'll want to make sure that things aren't out of control and crazy hairy down there. You know what I'm talking about. Manscaped has the best tools for your grooming experience. The Lawnmower 3.0 is the best hygiene tool for the modern man. It has the ceramic blade and the skin safe technology, which means snags will be reduced so you can tidy up with confidence. If you want to go all in and get yourself fully manscaped before you leave the house, then what you need is the Perfect Package 3.0, which comes with the aforementioned Lawnmower 3.0. It comes with a water-resistant cordless body trimmer, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag to keep it all in, because Manscaped are committed to keeping you tidy. And if you want to save some money on Manscaped products, you can get 20% off plus free shipping if you use the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code TSS20. That's TSS20. Thank you to Manscaped for sponsoring today's show. And thank you to Sam and Paul for making a little room for this ad break. Let's get back to Sam and Paul. And we're back, Paul. Um, we just had a long discussion about front offices and all that fun stuff. Let's talk about the people that actually drive the league. Let's talk about the players, specifically the young ones. The kids are the future after all. So let's have a little discussion about Orlando and what role the young players around MLS are going to play in this tournament and what role they're going to play in the league moving forward. So obviously, the Orlando tournament, for those of you I mean, I'm going to assume that most of you know if you're listening to this podcast, but for those of you who have maybe have forgotten, um, every team in MLS is going to be down in Florida. Uh, there's going to be a month-long or so tournament, 33 days, 54 games. Every team plays a minimum of three group stage games. 16 teams will advance to a knockout round, single elimination, which will conclude with a final on August 11th down there at ESPN's Wide World of Sports. The teams that make it all the way to the final, they're going to be playing seven games in a little bit more than a month, or, you know, depending on when they start, like maybe less than a month. Um, that is a lot of, a lot of schedule congestion. Um, and they're coming off of three months off where they haven't been doing all that much. Um, some individual training teams have gotten back to full training, um, here over the last few weeks, but basically they're going to be needing depth. It's really hot down there in Orlando. Paul, I know you know all about that. Um, and they're going to be playing games and it's going to be draining and they're going to have injuries, no doubt. And so teams are going to be rotating their squads and those that rely on young players will probably be pretty well served because those young players can recover faster and typically have uh, less risk of, of kind of those muscle strains that, that might be popping up a lot down in Florida um, than their older counterparts. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how teams rotate how teams use their depth. Everyone's getting five subs per game per FIFA rules. And, you know, maybe which teams rely on those young players heavily and which young players specifically maybe make a jump here over the next month or so. Yeah, you know, it it is a really interesting experiment in a way for Major League Soccer because before this tournament came to fruition and, and you and I would have conversations about what the league will look like when it comes back, the number of games that would have to be played in a short amount of time. We said it, it kind of is setting up perfectly to force Major League Soccer into change that it has resisted um, in a lot of ways. And, and, and 
that major changes to put young players on the field more often out of necessity. Um, we know MLS rosters aren't that deep. Um, you, you create even more schedule congestion. You have injuries that are going to be occurring, and you're going to go deeper and deeper into these rosters, and more teams are um, going younger with their rosters because homegrown players are cheaper and because you have theoretically the potential to sell those players and keep 100% of transfer fees. But you know, now that we know what the format of the tournament is going to be, even knowing the schedule congestion, I, I look at this and I think there is no way, and I don't believe that there, there's going to be a team that bucks the trend that we, that we are typically seeing from those teams. And so there are MLS teams that are known now for playing homegrown players. Dallas, Philly, Salt Lake have all put a lot of homegrowns on the field. And, and we'll probably see them do the same in this tournament. But I would be surprised to see other teams, you know, try young players. And, and maybe I've just grown more pessimistic or more jaded about it. I mean, my own personal opinion about hashtag play your kids has, has changed and shifted over the last five years um, as I've watched the league grow. But I don't know, man. I sit back and I think, I just, I don't think that coaches in MLS feel inclined to provide these opportunities for kids or see the value in sometimes just throwing a kid into the fire the way I think that clubs in Germany do. And we know that they do because we, we see how many young Americans go and get thrown in. Some are going to succeed and some are going to fail. And Canadians. And Canadians. Sure, sure. And Canadians. So... <laughs> You know, I don't know. Am I am I way off here? Do you feel like you're going to see teams that kind of step into this tournament and say, oh, you know what, we're going to throw some young players out there? I don't think it's going to be anything massively different, but I do think it'll be a little bit different on the margins, right? And I don't know if teams are going to have a choice in some cases, right? I look at Kansas City as a pretty good example, right? Felipe Gutierrez is out for what appears to be the entire season. Um, I think they announced seven to nine months. Uh, that's one midfielder down and who might be waiting in the wings, John Luca Busio, right? So that's a little bit less competition for him to get on the field. He got a lot of minutes last year, but all of a sudden he might be thrust into more of a role and we might see that all around the league. I, I, I mean, there's like, there are going to be injuries down there and there are going to be guys that miss games and there are going to be guys that need to be rested like straight up. And that's going to allow for a few more opportunities um, in what will be a crucible of an environment for young players. And I think if those guys take those opportunities, then maybe, you know, a coach who wouldn't be so inclined to give young players a chance, that might change. So I think it'll change a little bit on the margins. Um, I think the clubs that have, you know, the track records of doing it are going to do it more than others. But you might have a few that, that get nudged a little bit here and there, you know, and I don't think this is just a homegrown thing, right? Paul, you mentioned in, in our kind of like pre-show conversation about this that LAFC have a really young team. Um, they don't have homegrown players because they haven't really had an academy. They're brand new. Um, but they do have a lot of young guys. And we're going to see all of them, I'm sure, in significant roles. Um, and so I think that's going to be a, a team that you know you might not think of in that way. Uh, but it's going to be pretty interesting, especially if Carlos Vela doesn't end up going, um, which, you know, real possibility there with his 
his wife pregnant and uh, a potential exemption from the tournament. Um, so that's going to be interesting. And, and, you know, I'm just intrigued to see if there are young guys that were sort of like on the edge that might get a chance and might take it. That's, that's kind of my thing that I'm going to be looking for. One of the things that I'm going to be looking for in this tournament. Um, I'm interested actually in New York city FC, um, on this front, they've had a lot of success on their Academy. Um, obviously Gio Reyna kind of came through and helped them win a bunch of, bunch of different trophies before he moved to Dortmund. Um, but there's another kid, Joe Scally, who's moving to Borussia Mönchengladbach in January um, for a couple million dollars. And that, that fee's already been agreed to and arranged. Um, but I'm curious to see, maybe he gets a chance to to break through in a way that we haven't really seen. And, you know, uh, they have James Sands, another young young homegrown who's, who's done some good things for them already. Um, so that's one that I'm intrigued to see down there, particularly with a new head coach. We don't really have a read on how he feels about all of that so far. Um, in Ronnie Dyla. So that, that one is, is one that I'll be watching. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think that the best thing that could happen for this league is for one or two of these young players to get a chance and to show something, right. You know, I mean, for example, I'll just give an example from earlier this season. He's not, he's not a teenager, but Mauricio Pineda for the fire got thrown into the starting lineup in game number one, coming you out of college. What you he got thrown into the fire? No, oh, he got thrown into the starting lineup. <laughs> and I don't, I told you I don't want to get replaced by Matt Pence on this show, Sam. Um, <laughs> and, and he performed really well on the road in Seattle against the defending champions. And he earned a second start. And I thought he performed well again. And he's 22, so it's not the same, right? He, he better be performing yeah. well at that I mean, age. right there, he got more of a chance than his older brother ever did with the fire. Right, so. exactly. And, 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 you know, maybe it's going to be, you know, they've, got a, they've signed like seven or eight, 16, 15, and 14-year-olds on the fire. Is it only seven or eight? I thought it was like, like 27, the way <laughs> they've been rolling out those but, press But, you know, I've heard, I've heard good things about guys that, you know, on that team, some of these younger guys have done well in training and, you know, do you see a kid like Brian Gutierrez or or Alan Rodriguez, who are you know sixteen and seventeen respectively, come in and you know who knows? They get thrown in for ten minutes. They do something really well that gives them that gives them a chance at twenty five in the next game. And suddenly, maybe it's not even the rest of the tournament that they're starting, but now they're factoring in. And when MLS comes back, they they get time on the field they wouldn't have had. And and at eighteen and nineteen, they're starters in MLS. What? Why? Why is that significant beyond the Chicago Fire? Because you mentioned it earlier in the show. This is a copycat league. You, you know, if a team like the Fire, who have one of the worst track records in Major League Soccer for producing homegrown players in a fantastic soccer market, shameful. By the way, if they suddenly are playing young players to great effect, and those players are successful on the field and get sold, you know. Whether it's one of these young players I just mentioned, it's a lot of ifs, to be fair. but sure, it's a lot of ifs. But that's the ideal scenario for other teams in MLS saying, "Well, why aren't we doing that too?" You know, and and telling coaches you have the freedom to do it. And I and I, I mentioned earlier that my opinion about this has changed. I think part of it was I was so. And I am still so frustrated by the attitude around. Major League Soccer's young players and American young players in general. I'm tired of watching clips of players in Europe playing for an under-19 team, making a basic pass and seeing gifs of it show up on Twitter 
five minutes later about how great of a vision this is from this player playing in an under-19 team <laughs> in Holland. What, you don't think one pass in a 90-minute game is an accurate representation of of a player's ability and or the level that we should all get really excited about or the level of play in an under 19 game in, in almost any European league, you know? So I, I have this kind of bitterness that's formed over time and that I I've seen so many players get hyped up and, and fall so short of expectation. I've, I've heard so many people accuse coaches of bias towards X, Y, or Z when really, you know, they are just not playing a 16 year old kid who's not good enough yet. And when I first arrived, uh, moved back to Chicago, I was doing sideline stuff um, for the fire broadcast. And, you know, that first season under Velko Panovic was, you know, it was a disaster. It was it was a, a really bad team um, who got very few results. And there were some younger players on that roster. Um, and I say younger players, quote unquote, there were probably one or two who actually were young and then some homegrowns who were 22, 23 years old. Right. And they weren't really being played. And I thought to myself, you know, they're not good enough to play, right? They're, if they're not good enough to beat out the guys in front of them on this team, you know, what's the point? But, you know, looking back on that season now, I think, man, that team was terrible. They knew what they were doing. You know, Nelson Rodriguez had pulled money out of that team, had traded players to gather money. All of the design of what that roster was about was set for the next year. It was a part of the process. And so, absolutely, the, you know, Velko Panovic should have been playing every single player on that roster. He should have been getting every single player a chance on the field because there are some players who are practice players. There are some players who are game players. Some players who are going to surprise you in a game, who are going to gain confidence from going into a game and doing well and are going to accelerate their development because of that. And you're not going to find that out unless you play them. And so later on, I, when I saw how the plan unfolded in Chicago and I saw that there was a conscious plan of, you know, not really looking at the 2016 season and, and focusing on the 2017 season, you know, why wouldn't you play young players? And so I do think there are scenarios within every club in MLS that when you sign a young player, there needs to be a plan in place. We, we hear Peter Vermees talk about it with Kansas City. You know, there has to and be And they a haven't plan. done a great job of this, by the way. No, they, they, the I, I actually don't I don't totally agree with that. I think, you know, they've had some issues with injuries. Jalen Lindsay's an example of a guy who picked up a bunch of injuries. You have national team time that you factor into the number of well, minutes. They, I mean, but they, they don't rotate their squad and they fade down the stretch almost every single year. But it, it's not necessarily it with just, major injuries. I, I think we're, we're talking specifically about younger players and like last year is a good example. Sure. I think Busio got to his yeah minutes, yeah, like, yeah yeah you know, he I got agree. to the design of what the plan was for that specific player i'm i'm worried less about squad rotation overall and more about a plan for a younger player if you don't get these players minutes if you don't have a real legitimate plan to hit 1700 minutes or 2000 minutes or whatever it is you set for these players across multiple areas right maybe it's going to be the bulk of those minutes are with your u19 team maybe the bulk are with your usl team Maybe you loan them out. Maybe they're going to play in the U-17 World Cup and you factor in those minutes. Whatever it may be, there has to be a plan. And part of that plan needs to be first-team minutes. You need to build it in and give these kids a chance. And you'll learn about them. And whether it's positive or negative, you'll learn about them. And I know every team is going to be different. It's going to be a lot harder to get into the LAFC squad or Atlanta United squad 
than it is to get into the Chicago Fire or Colorado Rapids or Vancouver, but there needs to be a plan to try to throw these kids into that fire and to give, the, as you gave me up my line earlier, <laughs> no pun intended, throw again. them into the fire <laughs> and and give them that chance, give them that chance to show yeah. that they can do something. And I, you know, I say all that that my opinions change, that I think there needs to be better planning by MLS teams, but I don't think it's going to happen in this tournament as much as I hope it does. Um, and I hope I hope I'm proved, proven wrong. I hope that there are a lot of teams that say, you know what? No, we are going to throw some of these homegrowns out there to see well, I think what we've got. There's a lot to unpack there in a few different levels. And I think, you know, first of all, yes, you need a plan. And a lot of teams haven't had a plan. And there are ways that you can help set kids up for success. You know, if you throw them out there with a full reserve team, you know, after making a cross-continent trip on short rest, um, you know, chances are they're not going to be that great but if you throw them out there in a home game with nine regular starters and maybe two kids well that's that's ingredients to succeed right there so there are little things you can do like that um to help bring them along and that falls into the broader thing of the plan but the big thing for me here is there's just like a tension in mls on the individual club level on the league level and just in terms of how the league is structured right you talk about oh well, like, why wouldn't Ponovich play a kid? Or why aren't these teams giving their kids chances like teams in Germany do, right? You mentioned that earlier. Well, it's because, like, what are they incentivized by, right? And everyone in MLS wants to make the playoffs, and more than half the teams do. And so pretty much everyone has a chance for, like, 90% of the season to get in. And if you're fighting for one of those spots and you're on the outside looking in, well, then you're going to roll with your best 11 for as long as you can. And you're not going to want to take a chance throwing a kid out there who you don't know what you're going to get from or who might not be good enough if you're a coach that might not make the playoffs and your job might be on the line, right? So it's totally understandable why this works the way it does. Um, now, we're starting to see those incentives change a little bit. And we, we talked about this in our earlier discussion in the first part of the show. Um, with these, you know, GMs that are coming in from overseas with the idea of selling players, right? And so if you can actually sell players, then yeah, that model will change a little bit. If you can find this revenue stream that the rest of the world has that MLS really doesn't, but it's going to be interesting. And that's going to be a really interesting evolution over the next few years to see if MLS actually can become this selling league that they want to be. Um, particularly now that the whole transfer market's going to be way different because of coronavirus and, you know, the economic knock-on effects that will come with it. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know, Paul, like I get it in, in a lot of different ways. Like I do wish kids got a little bit more of a chance. I also don't like the discussion around a lot of young players in the league, particularly the young American ones. Um, but I also understand why these coaches sometimes don't give those chances but, um, because that's the way the league's set up. Sure. I get that, Sam, but I let's, let's take a breath here for a second. And, you know, you and I talked we saw a, a tweet from our colleague, Jeff Reuter, and we, this was a while back that he tweeted it out and, and we had a conversation about this. Actually, we, we actually recorded a yeah, whole podcast, full, full transparency. We recorded a podcast about it early in the week and the news broke, which is why we always record late in the week because every time we've ever tried to record <laughs> on a Tuesday, news breaks on a Wednesday and we have to re-record an episode. So, um, you know, MLS plays, the number of minutes that went to under 21 players 
was just 8.5% for Major League Soccer. That is equal to the Premier League, okay? It is less than Liga MX, which is 9%. It's less than the Bundesliga, which is 9.8%. It's less than the Superliga, it's 11.2%. Ligue 1 in France, 15%. Eredivisie, 27.9%. We, you know, we're not talking about MLS needing even to get to the Eredivisie which is a, a league built on selling and producing players that, and, and trying to get its teams into European competition and to, and to compete there, right? They have a model that's worked for a really long time, and they follow that model. They have these academies that are incredibly successful, and the player prices are pretty set in, in Holland because of that long-term success in that market they've created themselves. MLS doesn't need to wake up tomorrow and give 30% of its minutes to young players, but it shouldn't be even with the Premier League. It should yeah. not be at the same as a league that's spending more money than anyone else in the world on top players because the reality is... That's we, not a developmental league. That's, we, that's a you've developed league. Exactly. Right and if you look at the disparity between the amount of money spent and this percentage, MLS will look even worse than it does with just this list. This number needs to be up above 10%. And that's not a high bar to set. For a league that is still spending such little money, that is still trying to break into the international world, that is still trying to establish that American players are good enough. And it's it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy here. Until MLS puts these players on the field, allows them to succeed, and then sells them, all of those steps, it's not going to be able to fully integrate into the international market unless it wants to just become a buying and selling league where those profit margins are are much smaller and the risk is higher. And for so for the long-term health, they need to start to see that number trend up. And whatever they have to do to convince, I mean, you know, we have to talk about what is what is the level of success in this league that you think that it's better to play a full season and finish seventh in the Eastern Conference and play one playoff game, and that justifies letting your homegrowns rot on the bench. That's not good enough. That's not a good enough answer for me. And there are way too many teams that are happy as long as they sneak above that playoff line, get one knockout game, get knocked out. Maybe they pull an upset, go to the next one. They're not going to win MLS Cup. And they use that as an excuse to continue not spending money on the international market, to continue not playing young players, and to just skate by. And, you know, we talked about Vancouver at the beginning of the show. It, you know, they did that for a couple of years with Carl Robinson. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about Colorado. They've done that before. They've had a, you know, won an MLS Cup in 2010. They had that big season in, what was it, 2016 with Jermaine yeah. Jones. You know, and, and that is not a way to have sustained success. And you, you, you look at that and you balance it and you say, okay, well, what, where can those, what are the comparisons for those teams for the amount of money that they spend? Well, it is Dallas and it is Salt Lake and it is now suddenly Philadelphia. All ownership groups that don't like to spend money, all teams that have had far more success than Vancouver and Colorado, even Chicago, teams that don't spend a ton of money consistently or smartly in the case of Chicago and don't develop homegrown talent and yet try to find those one or two peak years 
that uh, that buy them time to not change, essentially. And you know that that is going to keep MLS where it is right now. It's not going to move the league forward. It's not going to grow the league. And and neither is only following the style of LAFC and Atlanta, which is finding the next Miguel Almiron, which is not easy to do. You know, Atlanta hasn't done it since they found Almiron, right? They have they've made two huge money signings that haven't been Almiron. LAFC signed Horta. That didn't work out great. They they've had some pretty good players, but it's not Almiron. It's really hard to have those those players. So um, I just think that this has to be a shift in philosophy for the long-term growth potential of Major League Soccer. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all really well said, and I pretty much agree with most of it. <laughs> so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, waste anyone else's time by repeating it or doing doing anything of that nature. Because I, I mean, you took a lot of the words out of my mouth, Paul. So nicely done on on that that little monologue there. Um, but it is going to be interesting to see how it all plays out, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next, oh, what, six, seven, eight weeks down in Orlando? Because I do happen to think that some of these young guys are going to get opportunities down there that they wouldn't have in a regular season format. Um, and I would imagine some will probably take advantage. And it's going to be interesting to see who those who those that take advantage are, who those that maybe don't take advantage that we expect to are. Um, which teams take advantage and which teams don't give opportunities. Um, that's one of the aspects of the Orlando tournament that I'm most intrigued about. Um, and I think, you know, could in, in a lot of different ways, um, have a lot of, uh, impact on the long-term direction of the league. So I'm excited for that part of it. Um, and yeah, you got, you got anything else you want to no, get off your chest? I'm just saying it's a good thing that you will be down there in an RV with Pablo to cover it all, you know? <laughs> Listen, you know, um, the tour bus, we're, we're going to get on it. It's going to be, like, almost famous. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm not going down there. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not I'm not going to subject myself to that. Um, you know, all sympathy to everyone that has to go down there away from their families for that long of a time. But, you know, there will be some cool stories, but all the interviews are going to be over Zoom. I can do that from here. And uh, unless something changes, I plan on doing that from right here. Anyway, Paul, um, thanks for the convo. As always, I think you re-secured your starting place. So so thanks for bringing it tonight. Yeah, you know, I got to watch out for those homegrowns, though. Jeff Reuter, he's, he's, I got to keep an eye <laughs> on him, especially. Yeah, you do need to watch out for Jeff Reuter. Jeff champing at the bit all the time. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I think we can wrap this thing up, Paul. Let's uh, let's sign off. I'm Sam Stasekul. He is Paul Tenorio. This has been Allocation Disorder. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>